I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the road ahead for your money with stocks staging their worst month since the spring. So much to consider over the next few weeks. We are going to debate what you should do with our investment committee. And with me for the hour today are Stephanie Link, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, Kevin O'Leary, the chairman of O'Shares ETFs. Good to see everybody. Let's check on stocks right now. Second to last day of the third quarter. Go down as the worst September since 2011. Dow right now, as Carl said, down 200. S&P's down a half percent. NASDAQ not down as much, but still in the red. Many, Kevin, questions that need to be answered uh, as we look at the months ahead. Principally, does tech stage a rebound in October? You have huge positions in the fangs. What do you think? Not only in the fangs, but any large Internet in, uh, enabler anywhere globally. I own so 70 names globally that are involved in Internet commerce. And what matters to me, Judge, is sales growth. And they have it. And, you know, I think there's going to be a major rebound because several reasons. You know, we have started on a digital journey, not just in America, everywhere. Europe, you find it in Asia, South America. People are finding the convenience of shopping and buying and being serviced online incredibly powerful, having been forced into it. It's a theme we've been talking about for six months. But the idea that it's going to go away after the pandemic is resolved, whenever that is, is ridiculous. This convenience is born forever. And the enablers of it are all the names that empower this. They're going to continue to outperform. They're going to continue to outgrow. And not to not have positions in them, remembering that even an Apple or an Amazon, over its journey to its behemoth size, had multiple 20, 30 percent corrections. You just got to take a deep breath, have a nice glass of Chardonnay and relax you, you think as it that, happens because it'll come back because it's growing. You think that's the kind of correction we're in store for? I mean, if you look at the, the, the apples of the world, Facebook, Alphabet, in, in this month, September, they're down double digits. Amazon's only down eight, Microsoft seven and a half. But do you think we're in store for a larger correction? Did those stocks get, get too ahead of themselves? No. No, I, I, I think Apple's unique. I mean, every, every, every name has a different issue. There's still a little bit of consumer electronics associated with Apple, although it gets less and less as services grow. But the Amazons and the Googles and the Alphabets and even the Shopify and the more spicy names like Zoom, that trend isn't going away. And this whole idea of, you know, stay-at-home stocks... Forget about that. The digital wave is going to just keep coming. Now, either you believe that or you don't. I have made my investment thesis that we are going through a fundamental change in our economy, and I want to own the names that are empowering that. I want to own them now, after the election, next year, and the year after that, because we're only in inning three. Just look at Nike's earnings, Judge. They're almost 33% direct-to-consumer. They don't even want the retail stores anymore. 100% gross margins sell direct to a customer globally. Yeah. That's where we're going. That's what Apple's going to do. And Who's empowering that? It's the Internet giants and technology and the Googles and everybody else. And I think that's where the play is now and for the next three years. All right, Steph, you've been lightening up on Amazon. Speaking of these, these big techs, you've you got to believe that if the market is going to have a good month of October, those stocks are going to have to perform well. It's hard for me to imagine that you're going to have an underperformance from Fang, mega cap tech, and the market is just simply going to brush that off and, and be fine. What do you think as we head into a new month in just a couple of days? Well, I think it's more than just sales growth that these companies have. They have free cash flow growth. 
um, and, and that's what Kevin talks about all the time, is free cash flow, right? They have market share, gains, and they have productivity. And so I agree with everything that Kevin said. I just think that they have had a nice run. And I am never going to apologize for taking a profit. I was buying Amazon below 900 many years ago. So for me to trim, it's just a trim. And I still like it. I still own it. But I'm right-sizing it, like I did with Facebook and some of the others as well. But I still think you want to own a combination of secular growing stocks, for all the reasons Kevin just mentioned and that what I just said, but then you also want to have a barbell with the cyclical names, too, because the economic data is going to get better. The next couple of weeks, I think we kind of slosh around a bit. And that is because we're kind of trying to balance better economic data, but we have uncertainty about fiscal policies, um, about the elections. It's seasonally a bad time in the marketplace as well. So I think the market's going to have a hard time digesting all of this. By the way, if we do get a fiscal deal done, I think that's a game changer. and I think the market takes off. But in the meantime, we probably slosh around. We wait for earnings. On October 12th, that's a very big week for earnings. We're going to learn more. We'll hear what the companies have to say. And then I'm going to focus back on fundamentals, which is what I like to do. Yeah, I didn't hear you say anything about the virus, though, right? I mean, what if, what if the virus starts raging again? Regardless of whether, the, whether there is well, a wherewithal to shut things down in, in, in any sense, uh, positivity rate above 3% again in New York. 15-day change in the U.S. is is up 15%. You've got some of the NFL cases now uh, front and center, and those are going to be in the headlines. I didn't hear you mention the virus at all. No, I didn't mention the virus, but it's certainly on the back, in the back of my mind, for sure. But we've also made a lot of progress on tests. We've also made a lot of progress on vaccines. So to the extent that we actually get more news there and we can actually issue these vaccines, then maybe it's short-lived. Or maybe we have to have a partial shutdown of the economy. You cannot lose $25 billion a day by shutting the entire country down. You can't do it. And they won't do it. And maybe, just maybe, if we have higher cases, maybe that brings sense of urgency to Congress and Washington and the administration to get a fiscal bill done. Yeah, I mean, that's why, Josh, I wonder, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's smart to be putting money in these cyclical plays or if you just, because you, you expect the virus numbers to continue to go up, if you go back to what got you here in the first place, what was working all along during the worst days of, of the virus, the Zooms, the Pelotons, the Teladocs, and all those other names that had just outstanding and, and hyperbolic moves, uh, parabolic moves, I should say, um, to the upside. What do you see? Yeah, so I think that's the point, Scott. And uh, Kevin O'Leary just did my whole act, but I'm not mad because I agree with him. If you look at the biggest winners, most of them were already winning pre-pandemic. And yes, if you want to be there, you're going to have to tolerate drawdowns. There's no, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say, I want to be invested in the biggest companies with the most sales growth, the greatest free cash flow generation, the highest prospects for returning capital to shareholders in the form of either dividends, buybacks, ideally both. You can't say you want to be there, but then also say that um, you, you, you want this margin of safety in stocks trading at 12 or 14 times earnings. Uh, you, you really have to choose. And the good news is it has not been a hard choice for a long time. And as I've mentioned before, I absolutely abhor the phrase work from home. It's work from anywhere. And Kevin is right. It's not changing. This is the future. It's the present and it's the future. And you want to be, if you're going to be overweight anything, I think you want to have a bias toward the kinds of companies that are either creating that future or are setting themselves up to thrive. And that doesn't just mean owning tech. Then go look at the other side of the ledger. XLE, you had this big two-day pop for the oil stocks. Boom, 
right back down. These stocks are being liquidated. 52-week lows every single day. The worst 20-day stretch for ExxonMobil in a century. What, what, tell me, why all of a sudden is that falling knife going to turn itself upside down and start rising. I can't imagine a well, then scenario what do you where do? it does. Okay. Then, then um, you want to just say, say that um, the cyclical trade is just not going to work uh, because of the environment we're, we're going no, to be getting days. ourselves into? But that's what I'm saying. It's just two days Mira, or three Mira, days or three weeks or two, whatever. If you, <laughs> well, if you have a time horizon where you're looking to scalp these kinds of short-term pops, well, that's a very fertile ground. You have stocks that are dropping you know, 10% a month but intra-month, they have a 7% spike because they get too overly hated. And you want to sit in front of your monitor all day long and try to catch those opportunities. Be my guest. They exist. There are people that are making a living doing that. Scott, there's a big difference. There's a big difference between. There's a, so, sorry, Scott, there's a very big difference between energy stock, the sector and industrials and discretionary. There's all kinds of various different I never even used either of those words. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, like, energy is totally different than... I, I, I did, though, and I was implying also that, that group of stocks, industrials, you know, materials, some of these things that have, a, have had a, a pretty decent move. Um, and that's, that's, I think, what, what Steph, you're, you're speaking to. Yeah, Absolutely, well, well, and they have strong here, balance sheets, they, well, have dividend, on, they have dividend yields that are very attractive. They have dividend yields that are very attractive, good balance sheets, good management teams. You have to be selective. You have to be a stock picker to get them. You can't just own the whole broad-based ETF. I, don't, I wouldn't do that. But I think there are tons of opportunities. Some of my best stocks this year are in the cyclicals, are in the industrials and discretionary. Financials are a different story. They're much more challenged because of the yield curve. Energy, it's in secular decline. It's only 2% of my benchmark. I don't even need to pay attention to it. Well, what if I told you guys, Jim, that um, okay, volatility is likely to be elevated in October, uh, because you're heading towards an, uh, was a very uncertain election climate. The virus numbers, you, you would have to bet, are only going to keep ticking higher as, you know, the experts have told us it's going to happen as you go into the fall. We're already seeing it in some key parts of the country. So you take the virus numbers going up. You take volatility increasing throughout the month of October uh, heading into the election. And, and you tell our viewers to do what with that? Look, you've got to not only uh, pick stocks, Scott, but you've got to be aware of what the day-to-day -day circumstances are. And by that, I mean the following. We got some volatility last week, okay? That was an opportunity for me and for others to buy high-quality growth companies, albeit not the shoot the lights out, but I bought a Walmart and a Microsoft at decent prices, okay? Kind of Garpy type of names. Now, I still have some cash, and I'm not so much worried about the volatility in the market overall. What I'm really looking forward to, and Steph alluded to this, is earnings are coming up. And what I'm hoping for are some stocks that will dislocate because earnings are misperceived for whatever reason. And if they are a particular cyclical name that I've got my eyes on, then that day I'll buy cyclicals. If it's a more growthy name and I think that the market's getting it wrong, that's what I'll buy. But here's the takeaway. It's stock specific and I'm looking for the volatility in the next few weeks coming out of earnings. I don't want to play the overall market uh, volatility. I have no idea who's going to win the election. And if I did, I can't tell you how the market's going to respond. I'm not going to play that game. As for the virus, I hear you. You're right. You're speaking factually. And we don't know when a vaccine comes. We don't know how it will be uptaken. Um, but those are things that could surprise either positively or negatively. So I'm not going to try to trade that. Kev, you're sitting on 40 percent cash. Is that right? 
Yeah, but I have to explain why. I don't want to be on 40% cash, but I've significantly reduced our exposure to commercial real estate in the last couple of months. And I mean significant. It was over 30% of my book. So it, I've taken it down to cash because I don't like what I'm seeing in rent rolls and what I'm doing to REITs myself with all of my retail locations. We are slashing our exposure to commercial real estate just in my own private book, just to give you a sense of it. And I know a lot of guys come on and talk their book up about hotels and commercial real estate and strip malls. I think I, I can cut my square footage by Q1, by the end of Q1, by 12%, saving 3% free cash flow in a portfolio that makes 15%. That's material. Do I want to own the real estate that I'm getting out of? No, thank you. So now I'm sitting on a boatload of cash because I've sold all my energy stocks too, and I have to put it to work. I'm the reason. I'm, I'm just another guy sitting on a ton of cash trying to put it to work, and there are millions of me out there. There's trillions of dollars trying to deploy it, trying to find a way to distribute well, 6% that, but that's, next year. And that's year. one of the reasons I why people... stuff to buy. And that's, why, that's one of the reasons why people are bullish on the market is because one of the things they say is, well, there's a lot of cash waiting to come into the market, even, even so, and where else are you going to put it other than the U.S., stock market. So what gets you to put that capital to work well, in the market and go below 40% cash? Judge, I used to deploy that capital in the fixed income market. I see no value there whatsoever, even triple B corporates. Why would I want to get, you know, two and a half percent on six year paper when I can own the equity and get two percent yield and have some of the CapEx growth on a name that's growing distributions and have capital growth as well in the, in the underlying stock? It's the Fed that did this to the market. They made fixed income worthless to me as an investor. It's not my fault. I just have to go with the flow and buy where there's the cash flow. And that's in large cap names that are driving business and growing sales. Nothing to do with fixed income. That market is brutal. It is a nowhereville. It, it is a death zone. A 30-year paper under 200 basis points. That's insane but to I, invest in that. I don't, hear you, I don't hear you saying you're rushing to get in the doors of the stock market either, though, right now. Wait a second, I am, but I also am aware of what Jim was talking about. I'm expecting some buying opportunities to come along. We've got lots of events. We have the election stuff. We've got the virus news. We've got all kinds of stuff that could hit us and bring us down and let me buy more names. Rarely in my life, Judge, have I ever had so much cash on hand. It's because I got out of an asset class that I know is significantly impaired. Real estate, a cornerstone of my holdings. Energy, a cornerstone of my holdings. The world has changed for them. I was 18% energy. I'm now 2%. So I have to redeploy. Right. But I am looking for opportunity, and I'm just another guy looking for opportunity. That's why this market is having a hard time going down. Well, there are a lot of voices out there today, uh, Stephanie Link, who are suggesting that um, you should buy into the weakness, that we are, as Ed Yardani continues to say, we're still on a V-shaped recovery track. Credit Suisse's Andrew uh, Garthwaite says buy into the weakness today. Compelling reasons still to be positive on equities 12 to 18 months from now. UBS, positive developments, underline upside potential. Tony Dwyer saying most of the weakness should already be in the rearview mirror. That's positive, 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 positive for an out outlook on the market. And David Costin tops that up. Steph, regardless of who wins the election, that the economic recovery and Fed policy will be more important in determining valuations in the stock market than the outcome of November 3rd. Sort of sounds familiar. Sort of sounds like what I've been saying for the last several months. I've been tracking all kinds of economic data, and the data is absolutely improving. Was it helped by the stimulus? Of course it was helped by the stimulus, but that's not the point. The point is, is that it's working. 
right? I mean, you know, one million SAR in new home sales last week. That is an insane number, up 43% year on year. You're going to do a 15 million North America SAR in auto, and that compares to 7.7 in April. That's also really impressive. It's still down year over year, but it's impressive. And so those are the two areas I really want to focus on. Manufacturing, I've given you a whole bunch of data points. And then, of course, on the consumer, it's haves and have-nots. But, I mean, that consumer confidence number today was very, very encouraging. So the stimulus is working. It's going to lead to better economic growth. We're not going to see 30% GDP growth forever. We're not. But if we go from 30% growth in the third quarter to 5% in the fourth quarter to maybe 3.5-4% next year, maybe even 5-6%, who knows? We'll have to see. I think that's what the election is going to have the outcome in terms of what the numbers will be next year, just given can they get if, if Biden gets in and then there are tax increases and that sort of thing. We can worry about that next year. The point is, I, I still think you're going to see a recovery. That means better profits. That means the market actually isn't as expensive on next year's numbers as people think, in my view. Yeah. Josh, what do you make of some of the commentary that I read out? Tony Dwyer, again, weakness should be in the rearview mirror now. Upside potential, Credit Suisse, buy into the weakness, Yardeni, V-shape. David Costin, no matter who wins the election, I, Fed is the, the biggest issue, and that's still with you. I think, like, if, you're, if you want to play a vaccine or a stimulus bill, go out and buy Marriott and Carnival and, and all that stuff. It's not my game. And if Kevin wants to put money to work, I, I, I do believe uh, residential real estate, specifically single-family homes, will outperform the stock market going forward. And even if you look at this particular drawdown that we're in right now, the S&P is 6.5% off its high. It's in a 6.5% drawdown. Um, the ITB, the, the sector ETF for home construction, uh, is less than 1% off its high. That market is absolutely explosive right now. We are at a level of home inventory of only three months supply. That is the lowest uh, inventory for single family homes since they began tracking data in 1982. Why? Two factors. Mortgage rates now have a two handle, which should have your jaw on the floor if you've been around long enough. And number two, we have a bull market in 30 year olds. The 26 to 29 year old uh, cohort is the largest demographic cohort in America. And they're having kids and they're buying houses and they can't wait to get into a home. And now that you can work from anywhere to piggyback off that trend, why not a single family home? So that is where stocks are working. Anything to do with renovation, remodeling. And Stephanie's point, some of the best trades this year were in industrials. Guess what? Most of them were levered to the housing market. You look at the ITB, um, it's, it's up 80% versus the industrials up 30% over the last six months. That's where money is being put to work profitably. These companies are selling at low multiples, 10 times, 11 times earnings, decent dividends, the potential to buy back, and growth as far as the eye can see because of persistently low mortgage rates and persistently high family formation. That is a secular mega trend. Why are you driving yourself crazy trying to catch the bottom in an airline? This is where it's all happening. And you can see it in the drawdowns you still, because these stocks barely budge. You still own invitation homes for, for this reason? I, I do, and I own Steward Information Services, which is um, one, of the largest, uh, one of the largest title insurers. And I think if you can find different plays on homes, home remodeling, I think you have a tailwind that supersedes anything going on with the pandemic and, in fact, may have been strengthened 
um, by the peculiarities of a real estate market where everyone wants more space and everyone wants to be in the suburbs. So uh, that's that's what I would be. That's where I'd be looking in, in terms of industrials and dividends and places to put cash to work. Um, and it is not tough to find winners. They're all working. Yeah. Kev, um, you know, it's interesting. You've been buying some stocks in what is, you know, I think fair to say the hottest part of the market right now, certainly one of the hottest stories within the market, uh, and that is SPACs. And you have three new ones yes. that you've, you've bought. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, let, let me give you the investment premise around SPACs. As, you, as I've already disclosed, I have money to put to work. I consider SPACs to be an alternative to private equity. And I've worked with most of the private equity firms over the years. SPACs are a more liquid version. Now, back in 2008, um, when I first, I actually sponsored a SPAC back then, and I would call the asset class in 2008, well, for lack of a better word, poo-poo. But today, when you look at the sponsors, let me give you an idea of the people that are sponsoring these structures. Bill Ackman, Todd Bowley, Michael Klein, Alec Gore. The, the Gore Group, you know, I know them well from my yeah, everybody, everybody has These a SPAC. These are really successful. Everybody has one now. Yeah, but they, they're very successful operators. They have a long track record of success. So, so I buy Ackman's SPAC and I ask myself, okay, if I don't like his deal, I can vote it down and get my cash back. And I find that very, very attractive. It's a drawdown. When you get these big drawdown days and you own a portfolio of SPACs, you don't see a big correction in the underlying because it's waiting to find a deal. It's sitting in cash. Now, I'm not telling everybody to go buy these. You have to read the S1s. You need a team of guys reading this stuff. It's complicated. And they all have different attributes. But do I want to bet with Bill? Sure, I'll give him some dough. To Todd Bowley, absolutely. The guy's track record is spectacular out west. I want to give these guys money to put to work for me. And basically, because we have less and less public companies, what they're going to do is find something and take it public, and I'll be getting in hopefully in the ground floor. That's why I'm doing it, but I'm being very selective. There's a lot of really bad product out there versus good product. But give me a guy like Alec Gore or Bill Ackman to be the, the sponsor, and I look at his track record. You don't have to love him. You just have to look at his track record, and I'm pretty happy but with what his I track find, record. So what that's I, why I'm doing it. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, Jim, what I find so interesting about SPACs as, as an investor uh, who would be looking at, at these things, you, you are doing exactly what Kevin said, whereas in a traditional investment or an IPO, you're sizing up the future prospects of the company that, that is going public at that very moment, right? What its future revenues are going to be, what the balance sheet is going to look like, the total addressable market, and things like that. When it comes to a SPAC, you're betting on an individual over everything else, as Kevin said, right? You're betting on the sponsor of the SPAC and hoping that they find something that's going to be good, they take it public, and everybody wins. Maybe people don't win as much as the sponsor wins, but everybody wins. What do you, what do you think about this space for, Scott, for our viewing audience? Well, listen, you, you okay, thank you, because I'm gonna repeat what you said and what Kevin said, because it's so important. You are buying into a person. You are not buying into a company. These things are also known as blank check companies. Now that doesn't mean they're bad, but just know what you're getting into. You have no idea what company they will buy, in what industry, so you're really going on the reputation. Now what's changed in the last year is some very reputable people have come into this space. 
And, you know, obviously we've talked about Bill Ackman, but there's other guys like Richard Branson, Gary Cohn, Chamath Palihapitiya, as you know, is, is one of the earliest ones. So what you, you just, as the viewing public, you have to know you are investing with a person, not in a company you have no idea what they're going to buy. Doesn't mean it's bad, just means you got to do your homework, like Kevin is saying. Josh, how do you view this, this space? Why not just buy it? At, why not just buy it after? I, I, I don't know. I listened to the probably the greatest, probably the greatest mutual fund manager still working today, has trounced the stock market for the last 30 years. Uh, Will Danoff. Um, this is a guy that generated 14% annual returns versus the S&P right. at 9%. The contra so I think fund, he knows what I he's believe, doing. at, at Fidelity. He, runs the contra, the contra fund, fund at Fidelity. He's run, He's running 125 billion dollars, and um, he's he's. He's built that performance track record um, by buying the greatest companies that have ever existed over the last 30 years early, from Google to Starbucks, Amazon go down the list. And his comment on SPACs, I think, is the most apropos to this discussion, which is, all right, I get it. You bet the jockey, et cetera. Why not just wait to see what they invest in and then decide on the merits of the company? Why do you have to be in early? Because the Robin Hood people, uh, people are going to give you a first day pop. Like if we're talking about investing and not trading, well, let's see what the SPAC buys. And then let's ask, are these operators, well, are they really good at rolling things up? Or can they actually integrate and, and run a company for the long term? And how many of them are actually going to stick around to do that post consummating a deal? So I think Kevin's comment is right. You want to be selective because there are 149 of these things right now, only 50 of which um, have have done a deal, so the rest are out there hunting. Most of them are not going to find something good to buy, but they're going to buy it anyway. Because if they return the money and don't do a deal, they forfeit founder shares and they forfeit all kinds of investment banking payments. So there there are huge conflicts of interest here. And as an investor who wants to invest in companies, I'd rather just wait and see what they buy. And if I miss that first day pop on the announcement of the news. Well, if it's really a great company and a great opportunity, that little first day pop won't mean anything compared to the longer term. So I like the idea of being selective. I don't hate the whole asset class. I do think the mania around you know, how many of these the market can really support uh, will end up being a washout for a lot of people. The only saving grace is that if it's a bad deal, you can vote it down or get your cash back. So I don't think people are gonna get murdered in them I just, I'm not sure about, you know, following the, the herd into these things. I hear you. Just because something's available doesn't make it good. All right. All right, good stuff. Let's take a first break. Uh, up next, it is the Halftime Quarterly Report, the biggest Q3 winners and losers in our investment committee's portfolios. What they plan on doing now, we'll find out. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Supreme Court Justice nominee Amy Coney Barrett is on Capitol Hill speaking to senators who will decide whether she joins the highest court in the land. The Senate Judiciary Committee is expected to begin deliberating her nomination on October 12th. J.P. Morgan Chase is set to pay $920 million to resolve federal investigations into allegations of manipulating global markets. 
metals market specifically. You can go to CNBC.com to read more about that record penalty. In Britain, officials reporting more than 7,100 new COVID-19 infections, the highest daily total of the pandemic. Officials also confirmed 71 new deaths, the most in nearly three months. Meantime, German Chancellor Angela Merkel vowing to avoid a national lockdown by quickly tracking new cases and shutting down local outbreaks of COVID-19. However, she expects infection rates to rise as winter approaches. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour. Scott, back to you. All right, Sue, appreciate that very much. Thank you. Well, with the S&P looking to close out its sixth positive quarter in seven, we're taking a look now at our investment committee's third quarter winners and losers. It is our halftime quarterly report. We pulled the names that our traders owned throughout the quarter. They had to own it for the entire quarter, and we broke out their best and worst performers to get an update on where they stand now with those positions. Josh, I begin with you. Zoom video. I mentioned Uh-oh. it earlier, okay? Huge winner, up 89% in the quarter. We start with that. You're going to continue to keep it? Yes. Great. The man of many words. NVIDIA, up 38%. Oh, I, know, I knew we had a lot of tickers to get to. We do. I'm sorry. We do, sorry. But, but, but this is one of those that I think uh, is on a lot of people's minds in terms of the broader thesis about why you own this. Yeah, Zoom, I... Yeah, Zoom, I took my original cost out. The stock is up, I don't know, like hundreds and hundreds of percent. Like at this point, the way I see it is I'm playing with the house's money. I expect massive volatility here. But given the fact that this company has essentially become Google for video, I cannot own it. Okay. Um, NVIDIA, as I mentioned, uh, Apple as well, huge winners, uh, obviously. How about these stocks? I mean, I I know you're going to keep them. um, But how do you view them going forward relative to how well they did? Uh, well, so I, I uh, this summer uh, on the show, I took about 20% off of my position of both of these, but, but kept most of it, kept 80% of it. And really, that was just a portfolio rebalancing issue. I, th- I think my original cost in NVIDIA is 1,000% ago. So as you have a stock for that long that grows this large, way beyond anything I ever expected, it takes over your whole portfolio. You've got to do maintenance. This is part of being an investor. If you're going to be a long-term holder of something, you don't want to have that one thing come to dominate what your returns will be going forward. So I am holding them, but I think I'm acting responsibly. Time will tell. I have no intention whatsoever of not being an investor in these companies because I see them as being two of the primary architects of our future way of life in many senses. And that could change. I could be wrong. You know, uh, Research in Motion was the hottest tech stock 15 years ago. And, and making that bet wouldn't have gone so well. So I have to keep plugged into the news and, and try to understand it as best I can. Right. But I've done pretty, pretty well so far. Maybe the biggest question I have about your laggards, given that you know, laggard relative term, I mean, Invitation Homes, we talked about, it's still up in the quarter, and so is J.P. Morgan. Uh, but Schlumberger, which, which I gather you continue to own, it's down 14%. You've mentioned today and last week about energy stocks getting, in, in your words, liquidated. Um, why aren't you liquidated? Yep. Um, two things on, first of all, this is, my, this is like one of my worst trades in ever. And actually, it's an execution failure. I broke one of my own cardinal rules with individual stock holdings. Um, I went into it as a trade, not an investment. But I had, I had no exit strategy. I had no stop loss, no sell stop limit, nothing. And it just got worse. And I guess I got distracted. 
The beautiful thing about having outsized winners in a portfolio um, and, and having a market recovery in general is that the ones that are losers, they shrink in importance to, to your overall picture. Like at this one, at this point, ha has been so murdered, it's almost irrelevant to me. Um, but there's been big insider buying, including from the CEO in this stock in the last 30 days. Um, and I think that's notable because it's not like these guys are buying all the time. And the other thing, Schlumberger strategically, I think did something that is long overdue, but whatever, they finally did it. They have exited shale. So they're going to be the biggest provider of global oil field services, traditional oil field services, and they have abandoned the shale business, which I guess at this point is uneconomic and a huge drain on cash. Um, so they've got, they've got a plan to turn the company around, reduce debt, and I guess you could say this is my lottery ticket on oil making a comeback. And if it does, Schlumberger will do as well, mm -hmm. if not better, than many other plays out there. So it's a disaster. I've done poorly. I didn't have an exit strategy. Now I feel uh, uh, emotionally anchored to this thing turning itself around. I mm -hmm. hope it does. In the meantime, it seems to go down 4% a day. So yeah. I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. No, I, I appreciate your candor on it. And I, I, know, our view, on that I know our viewers do. Uh, and frankly, the lessons that they can maybe learn. And that at the end of the day, is one of the most important things that we try and do anyway. Um, Stephanie Link uh, of UPS, which is up 52%. Twitter, which is up 49%. And Deer, which is up 40 in the quarter. Which are you most optimistic about going forward? Well, that's, hard. that's a hard question. But I want to just highlight why I've been saying you want to have a barbell between secular growth and cyclicals, because these three exactly are that, right? UPS and Deer, they're cyclicals. In fact, Deer is the most cyclical. Um, and Twitter is, is really a, a kind of a turnaround story. Um, and they are seeing a huge momentum in their monetizable DAUs. They're getting a better handle on their costs. Mm -hmm. Um, it, they were only up 5% last quarter compared to the first quarter of up 18%. So you get the operating leverage there. So I like Twitter a lot, but I really do like UPS because I like, um, I like uh, Carol Tomei, the, the new CEO. And they have a lot they can do in terms of cost cutting. And you are at the same time seeing volume surge. They have pricing power. And you haven't even seen B2B, business to business, come back yet. If we do get a successful reopen, that piece of it helps their margin. So I still like UPS an awful lot. And Deer is a recovery in ag and construction, and you have an industry that is, it has an aging fleet, and they've done a terrific job in terms of technology innovation. So they, too, have margin upside. So I, it's hard. They're, it's like asking which, which my favorite cat <laughs> or my, my favorite dog. You know, like, I like them all. <laughs> all right. In terms of laggards, uh, Chevron is down 20 percent, right? We've spoken a lot about what's happened in the oil patch. Fortinet's down 13 and a half, and AbbVie is down 11 and a half. Um, any plans to get rid of any of those, and how do you view these? No, I mean, Chevron is the only energy stock that I own. Um, I don't want to be 100% underweight energy, and I do have very uh, strong confidence in the 7% dividend yield. They cut CapEx twice, $6 billion, because they want to be able to maintain that dividend. So that's why I own it, and only the reason why I own it. Fortinet actually is still up 10% on the year. It was very high expectations into the print, and it really just fell off a cliff after they reported a conservative guidance, conservative billings. But I like what they're doing with their product set and getting into the enterprise and gaining market share. So I still like Fortinet. If 
if Fortinet uh, pulls back even further, that is a technology name I would absolutely add to. And AbbVie, I think AbbVie is down um, on the year and is down on the quarter. I think healthcare in general has been tough because of the elections, but I still like the Allergan deal, the synergies and the pipeline that it brings to the company. By the way, you get a 5% dividend yield, so that, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not going to get rid of them. Fortinet would be the one I would, would add to. All right, good stuff. Uh, Jim, we'll get to you later in the week. Okay, I promise we'll do that. Sounds good. We do have more trades ahead with That's the okay. investment committee and a reminder on a big CNBC event. Delivering Alpha is back for its 10th year tomorrow. A huge lineup of guests, including Mary Erdos, Carla Harris, Jamath Palihapitiya, and many more still have time to register too. Go to deliveringalpha.com. We are back in two minutes. Welcome back. We're counting down to delivering Alpha. Leslie Picker is here with a closer look at what we can expect tomorrow. Hey, Les. Hey, Scott. That's right. Less than 24 hours to go. And on its 10th anniversary, delivering Alpha will look a little different given the event will be all digital this year. But nothing was sacrificed in terms of the powerful voices from business and politics that will be speaking at the event. Uh, it will be bookended with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who will speak with our Becky Quick, and then Senator Elizabeth Warren, who will be interviewed by our Jim Cramer. Scott, your sit-down, metaphorically speaking, with Chamath Palihapitiya is among the most anticipated sessions at tomorrow's event. There are other speakers who we rarely hear from as well. I'm looking forward to interviewing Josh Harris, who's the co-founder of Apollo. That's been one of the most active deal makers this year. We'll hear from investors focused on growth. Think Robert Smith, the Vista Equity Partners, a private equity firm that focuses primarily on tech. And there are others, such as Mark Lazary of Avenue Capital Group, whose style centers more around value investing. There will be two panels that hone in on environmental, social, and governance issues. Uh, Morgan Stanley's Carla Harris and Carlisle's Q Sung Lee will be talking about providing capital for minority-run businesses. And then Jeff Ubbin, who had founded the activist firm Value Act but recently left to start Inclusive Capital Partners, and John Rogers of Aerial Investments will be discussing how to measure impact investing with a proactive ESG agenda. Scott. All right. Yep. Leslie, looking forward to it. Good stuff. Me Thanks too. very much. That's Leslie Picker for us. Up next, the best quality value stocks to buy in this market right now. We are separating value from value traps, and we'll do that in two minutes. Welcome back. Interesting note out today from Bank of America saying value has more room to run, and they're highlighting what they call 29 quality picks. Rahel has gone through those and she joins us now. Good to see you again. Hi, Scott. Good to see you as well. So they point out to macro indicators that they use in-house that suggest an economic recovery is underway, supporting cyclicals over defensive sectors. They note that value has outperformed, coming out of 14 of the last 14 recessions for at least three months. And that quality does become even more important during periods of volatility, which is expected until at least November. So among the 29 stocks that they like, we're going to put these up on the screen, uh, some of them, AT&T and Alaska Air. So they note that despite having the best liquidity runway of the airlines, Alaska Air still trades at a discount compared to its peers. They also like some of the financials like Goldman Sachs and Citi and perhaps controversially a few of the energy names like Exxon, Chevron and Occidental. The note saying that U.S. oil companies are not a value trap but are facing, of course, multiple headwinds although they suggest investors wait out Chevron and Exxon for a little bit longer. Now to some stocks, Scott, that they do believe are value traps. Key Corp and Molson Coors, in addition, restaurant brands, it sees some of its brands growing profits slower than its peers. So uh, watch those names, Scott. Well, thank you. 
Jim, you're my man on this, Farmer Jim, uh, because you own of the quality value names, Alaska Airlines, uh, which is a tough space right now. You still sticking with that? Yeah, I am. And you know what? I'm somewhat gratified by the report because it highlights what the what the positive there is. They have no net debt. You know, yesterday, American Airlines rallied like five percent because they borrowed another five and a half billion from the government. That's crazy. If you're an equity holder of American Airlines, you're getting further and further from participating in their profits at Alaska Airlines. You don't have to worry about that. There's no net debt. But the bigger issue here, this whole space, everything that was just listed, Scott, yeah. these are things that are, I'm not going to call them a lottery ticket, but they have a catalyst. Either you get a vaccine or you get a stimulus bill or in 2021 you get an infrastructure bill. These, there, there are positives that you can point to. You just can't say when. That's the you, problem. L- you can't say ask, when. Sorry. Let, let me ask you the question this way then. If you didn't own any of these today, would you recommend to our viewers that they buy any of these today? if they all need the catalyst of a vaccine to work? Um, Yes, because at the same time, and if you look at my portfolio, you know this, you have to have some of those growth stocks. You know I own Apple and Microsoft and Qualcomm. Those will continue to grow nicely while I'm waiting for the catalyst to appear. I'm not saying I know when a vaccine's gonna come. I don't know if we're gonna get another stimulus bill, but I do think the economy will be growing in 2021, Mm -hmm. and these are the companies I wanna own, in addition to the ones that are growing right now. We only talked about Alaska, of course, but you do have Goldman and Kinder Morgan, Medtronic, City, and Chevron of the ones on that list. We do have more trades still ahead. As we go to break, a look at some of the stocks hitting all-time highs today. Dollar General, Domino's Pizza, and Danaher. Halftime's back after this quick break. We're back and it's time for the futures outlook. Silver is rallying and traders are looking at key levels that could set up a comeback. Jim Urio, Jeff Kilberg join us now. Jeff, we start with you. It's interesting as I look at our notes, both of you guys are headlining with the dollar in terms of looking to where silver could go. Yeah. Absolutely, Judge. We're seeing a big move in the U.S. dollar. Let's just go back 30 days. We've seen the U.S. dollar move up about three and a half percent. It was down at 92 level when I went up to 95. Inverse relationship, we're seeing precious metals very heavily weighted upon. So we saw silver move back. It's having a nice day today, up 3.5%. And it certainly is the dollar take a little bit of a breather after that recent volatility, that velocity. But also look at globally, we're seeing spot demand increase for silver. So I think that is all being digested after the FOMC came out about their forward guidance in the interest rate. So at the end of the day, we are seeing a reason for silver to move higher. Yeah, Jimmy, I mean, dollar's important, obviously, but you need demand to go with it. No, no doubt about it, too. Demand's important, but I, I like to look at price more than anything else because demand, it's very hard to dig into the granular aspects of demand. I know I've been harping about this 94 level in the dollar, and it tested it again today. I like the chart on silver itself. It bounced off the 100-day moving average. It looks like it's going back up to 26. However, if the dollar bounces off 94 I'm, and, and starts heading higher, I'm not going to touch it because silver and the dollar can't rally together, in my opinion. Good stuff, guys. Thank you, Jeff Kilberg, Jim Urio. Talk to you again soon. We take a quick break. We come back. We do final trades next. Missed the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast, market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, 
Ask Half Time. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. Final trade time. Farmer Jim, you're up first. Hey, Scott, you know, yesterday Cleveland Cliffs, which I think you know has been a favorite of mine, uh, announced it's buying the U.S. assets of ArcelorMittal. <laughs> and that's going to do a bunch of things. It increases economy of scale, reduces net debt, increases EBITDA. But here's the most important thing. It actually makes them the lowest greenhouse gas producer in terms of both the iron ore mining and steel producing in the country. So there, we know we need steel. These guys are rapidly reducing greenhouse gas emission from doing so. Uh, I, I think it's a really impressive company with an incredible CEO. Okay, good stuff. Thanks for that. Stephanie Link? So Estee Lauder, I own this stock. Goldman upgraded it to a neutral today. I think you should, I sh I think you should buy it today. Um, they have strong brands, good products. Prestige is growing 5-6% of taking share, and China is back to pre-COVID levels. So I like that one a lot. Yeah, they took it off a sell, uh, which was an interesting call, and China has been yeah. uh, very strong. I heard Kramer talking about that this morning. Steph, as well. Uh, symbiotic as usual. Uh, Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, you know, it's Facebook, and I'll tell you why. 60% of the economy is small business in America. I'm just looking at my Q4 budget. Facebook's getting 80% of the digital spend because okay. they have regional and geo-locked advertising. All right. Quickly, Josh Brown. Prologis, PLD. All right. Nice new office as well. Guys, we'll see you tomorrow. That does it for us. The exchange starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.